Hello, and welcome to this edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Steve Needham at the ILO Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific in Bangkok. Here in Thailand, if you see someone selling food by the road, working in the fields, building a house, chances are they're working in the informal economy. They're certainly not alone. Recent ILO figures point to more than 60% of the world's adult labour force and some 2 billion workers operating in the informal economy. The informal economy is often characterised by unsafe and unhealthy working conditions, low or irregular incomes and long working hours. Workers in the informal economy are not recognised, registered, regulated or protected under labour legislation and social protection. The consequences are severe, both at the individual, family and national level. Despite major efforts over the years, there are few signs of the informal economy shrinking in size. In fact, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed more workers into informal work to survive. To talk about this, I'm joined today by Susanita Babes Tesiona, National President of the Alliance of Workers in the Informal Economy, who joins us from the Philippines. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Babes. And joining us from Geneva is Shahra Razavi, the Director of ILO's Social Protection Department. Good afternoon. Very good to be with you. Thank you. Um, thank you both for joining us today to discuss this important topic. Babes, let me turn to you first. No need to pay taxes, no regulations, no bureaucracy. You know, for some, the informal sector almost sounds like a, a paradise. But what is the reality of life for informal workers and their families? And how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected them? Mostly of the workers, generally the, the informal sector workers, like vendors, are largely unprotected socially. They are not largely unregistered in the national government agencies and even in the local government agencies that makes the absence or lack of, of social protection from the government. They are the earned law, especially during the pandemic. No vendors were allowed to sell their products in the public markets and even in, in normal conditions, they cannot sell anywhere because they are already regulated now, and because there are plenty of workers competing with the with the prices, largely the loss income or they do not profit at the end of the day, and they borrow money from loan sharks, and that makes them more vulnerable, and because they, there's there's no regulation, they are always caught by policemen or in the Metro Manila, it is the Metro Manila Development Authority personnel. And it's really hard. They are, they are, they survive very hardly by loans, by borrowing, and they cannot even pay those market or those stocks coming from provinces because they can hardly sell also during the pandemic. I mean, it's quite obvious that the, um, you know, the lot of the informal economy worker is, is a very very vulnerable one. Shahara, let, let me turn to you now. As we've we all seen and we've heard from babes, you know, just, just what the situation is like for informal economy workers. And the, the COVID pandemic has also, has also had a huge impact on, on, their, on their lives and livelihoods. In, in response, the UN and the ILO have recently established a global accelerator to help create 400 million jobs worldwide. And, and a key objective of this new initiative is to accelerate this transition from informal to inf- from informal to formal work how will this be done 
Yeah, thank you for that question. I think uh, I think as was already very uh, clearly um, pointed out by Babes, this picture that you initially painted of, you know, no regulation, no taxes, you know, isn't this paradise? It's actually not paradise. You know, no regulation, no taxes means no cushion to fall back on. And uh, it means when you're sick, when uh, you have a family member who's unwell and needs medical attention, you know, when you have no source of income because you cannot find a source of income or as we saw during the crisis because of the lockdowns, the restrictions, there's absolutely no um, no support, no cushion to fall back on. Um, and, and so, you know, it is, uh, it is living in a situation of high precarity. So, and we know that for more than 50% uh, of the world's population, uh, they have absolutely no form of social protection to fall back on, whether it's a pension or a family benefit, you know, nothing there. So the global accelerator really responds to this uh, situation that was already there before the crisis, but it just became much clearer to everyone um, that there were huge numbers of people, you know, who had no access to social protection. And so I think governments have rightly mobilized during the pandemic to put in place some measures. But many of these measures were temporary and they're already running out because they were there for a few months and now they're no longer there. And at the same time, the economy has not picked up and the jobs are not there. And so people are still highly precarious, highly vulnerable. Um, and the ambition of the accelerator is really to create, as you said, you know, the jobs that are needed, decent jobs with social protection and to extend the scope of social protection so that there is coverage for everyone. It's an ambitious agenda, but you know, the moment we're in is so dire that you only need big ideas and big um, plans in order to be able to address uh, the huge disruptions that this crisis has uh, exacerbated. Can you give me any examples that you've come across in, in your role as, as like the, you know, the global head of, of, of um, social protection for the ILO have you seen good examples from around the world to help people move from informality into 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 the formal sector? Yeah, I mean, I think what is important from a social protection perspective to really emphasize is that ensuring that people who work in the informal economy in particular, whether they're working in small uh, enterprises, uh, as Babes was just mentioning, which are very important in many parts of the world, uh, and the registration of those enterprises and the formalization of those enterprises is absolutely key. Um, or whether they are self-employed on-account workers, genuine self-employed on-account workers, I think there have been uh, many efforts to bring them under the coverage of social protection systems. And, you know, it's, 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 it's challenging, but it's not rocket science. And we have, you know, many examples um, of governments that have extended social protection to workers who are in the informal economy through, for example, contributory systems, you know, I'm thinking of social insurance systems, extending social insurance to those workers, as well as through kind of non-contributory mechanisms, you know, tax finance mechanisms. So, for example, I mean, thinking of, um, uh, we know that for many workers in the informal economy, when they get ill, uh, if they have to pay out of pocket, you know, this is something that's going to ruin uh, the household, the family. And it, it's, a, it's a major driver of poverty and of not families and households being able to move 
you know, even above the poverty line. So, you know, you have in countries like Rwanda, in Thailand, in Vietnam, you know, the social health protection has been extended to you know, workers in the informal economy. Or you have also examples of ways of simplifying, you know, the payment of taxes and social security contributions for small enterprises, for micro enterprises, as well as for own account workers. So that, you know, the the registration, paying taxes, paying social security contributions doesn't become such a challenge. So it can be done in one way, in one form. And here you have the monotax that was put in place in Uruguay and Argentina that has made it much easier for these micro enterprises to uh, register and to have social security coverage for them. Or, for example, extending unemployment protection to domestic workers. And here again, we know that countries that like Chile and South Africa, you know, have done it. They have extended their existing social insurance systems to include domestic workers. Um, you know, so this is this is kind of working, um, and uh, and there are very good examples on the ground from the countries that have done this, which now really need to be looked at and 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 in a way, you know, accelerated. I, I was in a Starbucks in in Bangkok a few weeks ago, and there, and there must have been maybe fifteen delivery drivers from these these platform delivery drivers there waiting to pick up their orders and, and take them to their customers wherever they would be. It's an incredible number, and it's obviously been been spurred by the by the COVID nineteen pandemic. But this this huge growth in in the platform economy or the or the gig economy has taken place worldwide. Is is this a good thing for the move towards formalization? Is it is it is it like a magic bullet which will which will solve a lot of problems, or will it does it come with its own uh, with its own challenges? Well, I think, you know, it's very much the latter. I mean, obviously, in many parts of the world and Asia um, is is definitely part of that. Uh, there are many jobs being created um, through this platform economy. Uh, large numbers of, you know, women and men who are working in the platform economy. Uh, and the challenges are also there, you know. Um, I mean, I think it's good that this is a dynamic source of job creation, but very often, uh, the workers who are working uh, on uh, on platforms, you know, don't have access to all the different kinds of social protection that are needed. Or if they do have access, many of them have access to it through another job that they have, but not through the platform. So the platforms are not paying their fair share, you know, of contributions and and um, to 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 ensure the sort of you know. Um, the well-being of their workers from whom they benefit. Uh, so I think the challenge is really to make sure that workers who are there um, are also the employers are also contributing their fair share to uh, finance the kind of protections that workers need in order to be dynamic and to make the contributions that they're already doing. And so I think there are many challenges ahead in terms of how you set up the necessary regulatory regimes and you make sure that uh, the platforms are also contributing uh, as employers, you know, their, uh, th- that they make their side of the contribution as well to the sustainability and uh, well-being of their workers from whose work, obviously, they're benefiting. Babe, babes, turning to you on, on the same issue, platform economy in, in the Philippines, are you, are you seeing this growing in the, in, the, in the communities that you're working with or, or the groups you're working with? And do you think it offers, offers good, good opportunities? They can be both. If the government is very responsive in or very, uh, because there are already laws, even if you have the, in the social security system, for example, there are already laws in which this platform uh, workers 
can be covered because I can say that there is an established employer-employee relationship between the restaurants, for example, for those in the delivery of food. They are, they are formal uh, businesses. And therefore, if there could be strict, stricter implementation monitoring by the Department of Labor and other authorities, then it could be good also to substitute the absence of work that we have in the regular work. But if the government is not working on it, it will. Uh, it's not good for the workers. If I can just also add a small point here, uh, if I may, on this digital platforms, I think it's it's useful to just refer to a survey that ILO did of um, twenty thousand platform workers in you know a hundred countries. So this was really across different regions. And it found that 40% of the respondents um, uh, were covered by health insurance and only 20% had access to employment injury protection, unemployment protection, old age pension. So very tiny proportion, 20%. But then also, I think what's really important is that the survey results highlight another major challenge, which is that most of the platform workers who did have access to social protection, you know, the 40% who had health insurance and the 20% who had other forms of um, coverage for unemployment or employment injury, they were not covered through their economic activity on the platform, but because they had contributed to social insurance through, through another job that they have or through another family member, in the case of health insurance, for example, because they have you know, a partner who has health insurance and they can benefit as a so-called uh, you know, dependent. So basically what this is saying is that the cost of their coverage is being borne by others, including other employers and taxpayers, while the digital platforms themselves are largely avoiding contributing to the social protection of the workers who are active on their platforms. And I think, you know, so, 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 so this is a really big challenge. And I think the other point that we need to highlight here, if I may just add it, it's that, you know, the informal economy is a very diverse, a very segmented economy. And really, we have to think about very context specific solutions for specific groups of informal workers. You know, platform workers need very different solutions compared to, let's say, you know, contributing family workers who are working on family farms, most of them women. You know, that needs an, a different kind of solution. And then domestic workers who are, you know, working in, you know, have multiple employers and work in a number of different homes. Uh, you know, again, they need very context specific uh, responses. So I think we really have to keep that specificity of response into account when we talk about workers who are working informally, because it is a very diverse group. Um, and that I think is really important to, to keep on emphasizing, if I may. I agree with Chiara. It's very true that it should be country specific and sector specific. Because, for example, in our particular case, the, the vendors, for example, was no employers, of course. They are already contributing as voluntary or uh, individual paying members to feel health and voluntarily member also of social social security system. And I think the best strategy there is really a massive education to the people, to them, what would their benefits be after they have enrolled. And this pandemic has shown them the picture, the difference between being socially protected and not socially protected because of the 
of the benefits that these SSS members get from this. So it really showed picture, and I took this opportunity of, of reviving, telling them in all our uh, meetings, always on social protection, social protection, so that when they retire, when they retire, or when they got sick, or when there is, because we are oftentimes visited by typhoon, that will help them raise their resilience. I mean, that's such an important point, I think, that Babes is saying, you know, this crisis showed everyone could see very, very clearly, very concretely why they need social protection. Even if you're young and you're dynamic and you think, you know, you don't need anything and you can manage, it just goes to show we're all vulnerable. So that's one really important point. So we have a window when people have really seen how it matters. But also, I think many employers as well and owners of enterprises saw that if they have social protection for their workers, it's also very important for business continuity. So I think this increased awareness of the importance of social protection. We only have a short window before you know people forget. And this is now really the time to use that increased awareness to make sure that everyone is registered, to make sure that people are contributing. And at the same time, I think it's also really important that institutions that are in charge of social security, that they also are very transparent and people trust the system and they know that when they make a contribution, then they can benefit when they have an accident or when they're old. Um, so, so that issue of transparency and trust in the system is also absolutely key so that people put their money there and feel that, you know, they're contributing, but it's putting it, you know, in a safe space and they know they will have access to it when they need it. But it's it's it's, it's a little bit sad that people only realise it when it's necessary, when disaster strikes or crisis strikes. I think it's also important to emphasise, you know, that, you know, COVID was a large scale shock, a big crisis, you know, a systemic one. But people have crises all the time, you know. We have employed, you know, you, you're working and you have injury at work. You know, you work and, and you have a health crisis in the family. Um, even forgetting about, you know, we all age, of course, and we need a pension at the end of the of our careers. But, you know, people have shocks and crises all the time. Um, and so I think it's important to keep that also in mind, that we need social protection, not because we will have another you know, COVID or we have a climate-related disaster. But also we have day-to-day -day crises. People always have day-to-day -day crises. And it's these day-to-day -day crises that push them, you know, down and, and push them behind. And, and when you have social protection, you know, you have that peace of mind and you have that security to be able to carry on in the world, you know, despite all the life cycle risks that I think we all face as human beings. A new buzzword which seems to be circulating now is, is this e-formality, um, which, which is coming up a lot, seen as, a, as an innovative way of, of using technology to include informal workers into the labour market. But what, what exactly is e-formality and is technology really the answer? Well, I mean, you know, technology is always, um, I mean, you have to be... <laughs> You have to know exactly what you're doing with the technology. We know that during this crisis, obviously, the fact that, for example, people could be registered online, the fact that payments could be done online into, you know, people's bank accounts or uh, that they, they could have uh, messages sent to them about being able to register online and have access to certain forms of benefits that were being made available. All that, I think, is great. Yes, yes, yes. I think because... With that digitalization, we are able to educate our leaders and they are able to access loans. Some of them were able to access loans. 
I think there is a lot of improvement of informal sector borrowing funds through digitalization. And right now, in marketing, some of our leaders have developed their own products, have accessed already Shopee, different apps to market their own products. So what is very important is only training on the ground, especially in the rural areas, because we haven't reached as far as the rural areas because of they do not have really the gadget. They need hubs. We need to we need to orient or to have a memorandum of agreements with the local governments to provide them that hub. Now that everywhere you can market even with your own cell phones, I think there is there is a good chance to have this digitalization a way of formalizing that. But I think we also need to bear in mind that um, these information technologies um, are not available to everyone. Uh, I think that's really important to keep in mind, particularly as we were talking about gender. You know, the digital divide is quite big. And when it comes to gender, we know that it's also quite significant. Uh, And technology shouldn't become yet another barrier that some groups, you know, then have to overcome yet another additional barrier that can exclude them. So it's as important as it is and as useful as it is to use new technologies for making, um, you know, uh, social protection systems more accessible and benefits more accessible and uh, and making it possible for people to access those. We also have to bear in mind that there always should be um, a uh, non-digital sort of uh, channel as well for people who don't have access to internet, people who may not have bank accounts, people who um, may not even be able to receive messages on an SMS. And, and, you know, and some of this is quite, I don't know if you've tried to register online on some, for some of these benefits. I mean, you really sometimes have to be quite, um, quite savvy to know what, you know, what to do. I'm not sure I could kind of do all of the things that are required. So um, so I think uh, as, as useful as technology is, we should also be very conscious of the fact that it could also exclude many people who are digitally disconnected. So, so technology does give some of the answers, but not, not every answer. A final question, babes. I mean, looking forward, what, what kind of future would you like to see for informal workers in the Philippines? I mean, what's, what's your dream? My dream really is for them to live, at least they will be brought up to the middle income. Simple living, but a decent living at least. Wherein they are socially protected, they have their own simple house, they were able to send their children to school. That's all. Susanita Babes, Tesiona and Shahara Razvi, uh, thank you very much for your time and talking about this complex subject. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having us. And I hope you, our, our listeners, have found, found this of interest. If we'd like to find out more about their work or about this subject more generally, you can find links on the webpage of this podcast, which is now on the ILO website. That's all for now. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.